I am uh, thinking of all of you at our Bolingbrook campus, all of you at 95th Street campus, everybody at Wheaton and all at Hobson. I love, I love the fact that we are one church at four locations, loving the Lord together, following him together, though spread out over our community. How fun. Hey, I want to show, speaking of Chicagoland, I want to show you a Chicago photo. Take a look at this picture. This is the great city of Chicago in a moment of not-so-greatness, in a moment of incredible agony. Can you imagine what this is? The Great Chicago Fire. 1871. This particular picture is of Well Street looking north towards Illinois Street, and it was at the corner of Wells and Illinois that a precious church stood and was burned to the ground. Uh, because of this great fire. The church was the church of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody is a pastor who uh, obviously of a long bygone era, but still remains an inspiration to me in so many ways. And D.L. Moody was 34 years old at the time of this fire. His, his church was only seven years old, but it had been going and growing like gangbusters. And this moment represented the lifetime low of Moody, as you can imagine, His whole world was devastated. He had been preaching on that Sunday night when the fire started. And as the service went on, they heard the sirens outside, but just kind of ignored them. And when at the end of the service, everyone walked outside, apparently there were like shingles on fire floating in the air and flames everywhere they looked. And it was a matter of hours before that very church was engulfed and brought down to ashes. Moody freaked out, ran home, got his family, and pulled his kids out of bed. In a matter of hours, his house was gone. In a matter of hours, his life, so it seemed, was gone. I mean, not only was the church building, and interestingly enough, the church was huge. It was a church of 1,500 seats. I mean, it's a massive place. Gone. And not only was the church gone, all the people were gone. You know, everybody fled Chicago. They had to go out to the countryside and live with friends and family. And so Moody, his life had been going, his ministry had been going so well, and now in one moment, it's just gone. And in a place of utter despair, three weeks after the fire, he went to New York City. There were some people he knew who expressed an inclination they may be interested in helping financially for him to try to rebuild the church. So he had gone out to New York City to do fundraising. He's on Wall Street, walking along Wall Street, in utter despondent despair and had one of the most profound moments of his life. I'd like to describe it to you. As he's walking in despair, he's recalling these two ladies in his church who used to drive him crazy, quite honestly. They would meet him in the lobby and they'd shake their finger in his face and say, Pastor Moody, we're praying for you. And he'd always say, thanks. And sometimes he'd ask them, what are you praying for me? And they would say, that you get the power that you get the power. And he knew they were referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. Moody admits, didn't say this to them, but admits in his writings that his thought was, hey, ladies, I think I have enough power. At the age of 34, I've built the largest church in all of Chicagoland. But on this particular day in New York City, as he's recalling his conversation with these ladies, he didn't feel like he had the power then. He was devastated. He never felt so weak. 
He felt, I don't have what it takes to start from ground zero, from scratch, and build the church all over. I don't have it, Lord. And with tears, he poured out his heart to God. Maybe the ladies are right. Maybe I need more power from the Holy Spirit. God, would you give me more power? And as he wept, he said, suddenly he became so aware of God's presence. I mean, he's out in public on the sidewalk of Wall Street. and Just this awareness of God coming near and God whispering, Moody, I'm with you. Moody, I love you. Moody, I love you. Moody, I love you. He said, suddenly his tears of sadness turned to tears of joy as he basked in a greater experience of God's love than he had ever had in his entire life. And the sense of God's love just kept growing and growing and growing to where he admits, I had to ask God to stop it. Stay your hand, was the words he used. Lord, I can't handle any more of your love. And that moment with the Holy Spirit in New York City, after the Great Chicago Fire, changed everything. Moody's explained it. He's like, it's so strange. He goes, from that moment on, he goes, I was still doing the same thing, but when I preached, though I'm saying the same words, and I thought in the same way, there was new power. And he said, where before, if I had one person who accepted Christ, I'd be delighted. Now hundreds were receiving Christ every time I preached. He said, I suddenly got invitations to go outside of Chicago, outside of the country. In the 20 years after that moment with the Holy Spirit on the sidewalk of New York City, the next 20 years, D.L. Moody led over a million people to new faith in Jesus Christ. He was the most effective evangelist of the 1800s without a close second. Uh, but it wasn't just his preaching. You should know, people said there was just something about Moody ever since that point. He was a better husband. He just had a love and a kindness that drew his wife in. He was a better father. There was an engagement and an inspiration to his interactions with his kids. He was, he was a better evangelist, better leader, better neighbor. Everything in his life was suddenly different and marked by this undeniable power. Wow. What went on on that sidewalk? I want to understand, as I know you do too. And so we're going to continue our series on the Holy Spirit called Filled, Life with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to try to understand what is the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's today's message titled, The Filling of the Holy Spirit. And as I look to Scripture to gain some understanding of what Moody went through, I, I normally like to have a singular passage that we study together, but I struggled to eliminate. There was so much good stuff that I found. And so if you allow me, I'm going to comment on five, five teachings, really short, five things the Apostle Paul said about the Holy Spirit, and they all were said to the city in Corinth. In fact, the two letters to Corinth, First and Second Corinthians in our Bible, uh, contained the majority of the teaching on the Holy Spirit. And so let's study these five sayings together, shall we? Let me tell you about Corinth, first of all, the recipient. There's a map. Can you orient yourself? This is Italy. This is Turkey. This is my wife's beloved Greece. I married a Greek. And here, this is Corinth. Corinth is on an isthmus. You know, an isthmus is that land bridge between two bodies of land. Very strategic location. This huge southern part of the peninsula is called the Peloponnese. And the Peloponnese was connected to mainland Greece through the isthmus that Corinth sat right on. 
And so why was that strategic for Corinth? Because all the trading between the Peloponnese and the mainland had to go through the land bridge, had to go through Corinth. The, the trading by sea, what they found is that we can save money by not sailing all the way around the Peloponnese. We can cut through, we can unload our cargo in one ship, put it on the other side of the isthmus, put it in another ship, and finish our journey. And so both by land and by sea, Corinth was the hub of trading. It was the boom town. Anybody who had a business, an ambition, a dream, would go to Corinth to start their business. Uh, Corinth was the uh, most populous, the most prosperous city in all of Greece, over Athens. Corinth was it. Now you understand why the Apostle Paul focused his ministry at Corinth. He actually lived in Corinth for a year and a half as he brought the gospel, established the church, developed the church. As we understand Paul's attitude towards the people in Corinth, you will discover in his letters that he loved them dearly, but they drove him crazy. They drove him crazy because there was this chronic immaturity, spiritual immaturity about the people of Corinth, specifically about their immature and inappropriate connection to the Holy Spirit. And it's that very failure to integrate the Holy Spirit correctly that we're going to now take a look at. In fact, the first two passages I want to look at are out of 1 Corinthians 12 and 3. Next slide. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says about the, to the Corinthians, we are all baptized in the one Holy Spirit. And the next verse I want to read is 1 Corinthians 3, 1. Paul says, I could not talk to you as those filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll notice I've highlighted the words baptized and filled. In the first verse, there's a positive thing. In the second verse, a negative thing. The good news, the positive, is that they were all, all the believers in Corinth, baptized in the one Holy Spirit. Folks, let's talk about the word Baptize. This is a real interesting word. It's really interesting because there's a lot of confusion. A lot of Christians would speak of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a second event subsequent to conversion. You know what conversion is? Conversion is when you become a true Christian. It's that moment when you cry out and place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the forgiver of your sins, and your Lord, the leader of your life. The Bible says in that moment, it's really crazy. I mean, our lives can still be a mess, but we come to him in that moment. And in that moment, we are not only forgiven of our sin, we are not only reconciled to God, we are not only adopted into his family, we are not only regenerated or made born again, uh, given a new life, we are also, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The concept of being baptized in the Spirit is found seven times in our Bible, four times in the Gospels, two times in the book of Acts, and one time in the epistles. And this is the one time right here. And every time, it is about this initial indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, am I denying the second experience that some Christians call the baptism of the Spirit? No, I'm not denying that they had an experience. I am arguing that it's not the baptism. I think the correct term, we'll get there, is filling. But the baptism of the Holy Spirit is always that initial moment when you become a Christian and the Holy Spirit enters into you. Uh, the Apostle Peter 
when he was preaching at Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost was the day when the Holy Spirit came to believers. Jesus had said, wait. We learned this last week. And eventually the Holy Spirit came. As Peter, Peter stood up in the power of the Spirit to preach to thousands, he invited them to become a Christian and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He was saying that upon becoming a Christian, you'll get this gift. And so this is the initial filling. That's why Paul says, all of you are baptized, excuse me, all of you are baptized in the Holy Spirit. The word baptized means to immerse. It's the water language. Water is so often associated with the Holy Spirit. We've learned about that last week. And to be immersed, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on you. And and that's what's uh, being reflected here. So, the... All the believers at Corinth were baptized in the Spirit. The sad thing is not all the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul said, when I was with you guys, I wanted to talk to you, but I couldn't. As those who are filled with the Holy Spirit. What in the world is filled with the Holy Spirit, and how does it differ from baptized? Well, let me tell you. First of all, being full of the Holy Spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit is found much more in Scripture than is baptized. And every time we look at the context of what's going on when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, we discover that it is an outpouring of the Spirit's power. That to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to be given by the Holy Spirit the enabling to face the challenge at hand. There'll be examples when an apostle will be preaching, and it says, he stood up to preach and he was filled with the Holy Spirit as he preached. Or there'll be a Christian who's facing persecution or in some cases martyrdom. And in that moment, they were full of the Holy Spirit. And folks, we discover that uh, to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to take the Holy Spirit who's already in you. You already have him he's, because you've been baptized. But sometimes he's there but latent, not actualizing his power. But to be filled is when that power comes out. Now, You can be filled once, you can be filled a second filling, a third filling, a fourth filling. The great thing about the filling is it's not a one-time occurrence. It can happen many times in life. It needs to happen many times in life because sometimes we start off and we're very filled with the Holy Spirit, connected to his power, and then we wane spiritually, drift away and get to a place where we need to be refilled. As uh, one Christian said it, he goes, I need more fillings of the Spirit because I leak And I suppose that's a good way to describe it. Uh, Sometimes it's because we leak. Other times it's we've been filled, but we've been operating in this level of the Spirit's power when there are greater levels of connection and experience of the Spirit's power that are still to be had as we grow spiritually. And so we need more fillings. And so now we begin to understand what D.L. Moody went through as we seek to explain this. Some Some Christians would say that D.L. Moody on the streets of New York, he was baptized in the Spirit. And I would say, no! Uh, He was baptized in the Spirit back in Boston in a shoe store when he was a teenager and became a Christian. What happened, and how he describes what happened, is a filling of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit had been in him, but there, the power of the Spirit was released in dramatic fashion. And friends, this is what we need Not just Moody, not just Paul, not just the Corinthians, but us. We need this because the task is too large. You know, you've been called by God, in some cases, to be a husband or a wife and to do it really well 
with extraordinary love. And you can't. You just know I need, if I'm going to love in the way God's calling me to, God, you're going to have to show up and do a miracle. Or you're called the parent and you're looking at these crazy kids and you're like, how can I disciple them? I don't have what it takes. I don't have the patience, the wisdom, the love, the power. And I need a filling. I need an outpouring of the Spirit's power in me. Or you look at your you know, attempt to bring the good news of Christ to those who are far from God. And you're like, I'm lousy at this. There's just no zip in my interaction with those who are far from God. I need a filling. I need the power released. Or your ministry at church, you know, you're like, I'm working with the kids and I'm terrible. Fire me. But you need, what you need is the filling, that anointing where the Spirit gives you an effectiveness that you don't otherwise or presently enjoy. We desperately need to be filled. And so the question is, How? How can I be filled with the Spirit of God? And there's a lot of ideas out there you'll read about. People say, well, you got to do this to be filled. I find the clear prerequisite of God illustrated in Paul's teaching to the Corinthians on the Spirit. And I find it in the same book, 1 Corinthians. Now I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 3 and 4. Ready? Paul describing his interaction with the Corinthians back when he lived with them, when he first came to them. And he says, I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message, you know, my preaching were not with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Let's start with that last phrase, a demonstration of the Spirit's power. What is this? This is the filling of the Holy Spirit. The, power, the Spirit was already in him, but Paul said, in that moment when I first came to you, there was a demonstration, a manifestation, an expression of the Spirit's power within me. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I, I, I didn't have a very good sermon. My words, uh, my presentation, uh. But you can't deny, he said, that there was something there. God was at work backing it. There was a dynamic, a divine dynamic, the power of God. So the the question is, Paul, what led to the demonstration of the Spirit's power? I argue weakness. Paul says, I came to you in weakness. I think the prerequisite for the filling of the Holy Spirit is getting weak. And it's not the weakness itself, but the desperate reliance on God that results from genuine weakness. Paul says, when I came to you, I was weak. I was, I was scared to death. I was trembling. Can you imagine Paul arriving in the great city of Corinth, all these movers and shakers, and he's one guy, and he's all alone, and these are the city filled with famous orators and powerful people, and he's like, who am I, who am I? His knees were knocking, which you may think is a weakness. Oh, that's perfect, because with knocking knees, Paul was saying, God, you've got to help me. Lord, I need you. This is going to go bad. Folks, I, I can relate to this. My knees knock before I get up to preach, there is this intense sense in me of I don't have what it takes. I'm scared to death. I'm like, Lord, if you don't show up, I will crash and burn. It will be ugly, Lord. I am telling you, I need you. You are my only hope. And that connection to weakness and desperate reliance is the key 
to being filled with the Spirit's power. This helps us understand what happened to D.L. Moody, doesn't it? Think about it. The ladies were right. When they looked at him, they're like, Moody, you're a great pastor, but you lack the power. He was lacking the power. He knew that when it came, he looked back and said, they were right, I was lacking the power. Why was he lacking the power? Why was he lacking the filling? Because, remember that simple statement? I think I have enough power, ladies. I built the biggest church in Chicagoland. That self-reliance was the problem. And it wasn't until God brought him low through the great Chicago fire until he lost everything when he became in touch with his weakness and he realized, I'm a mess. I don't have what it takes. And from that posture of humility and desperate reliance, God was like, finally, Moody, you have the heart posture that I've been waiting for and the spirit who's been in you but partially dormant will now become alive and the power will fill you. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Folks, uh, I think part of the problem is this word filling sometimes is confusing because filling sounds like the Spirit's coming into us, doesn't it? If I'm filled with the Spirit, He's coming into us. But what's important to understand is the word filled is an experiential word, not a technically accurate word. In other words, the Bible has chosen a word that describes what it feels like. When, when you have become humble and desperately relying on God and the spirit who was already within awakens, if you will, and begins to express power, it feels like this power is flowing into you. You're being filled. And so it's called filling. But technically, the spirit's already in you. What's happening literally is his power is being revealed because of your humble weakness and desperate reliance. I think this helps us understand the problem in Corinth. Why were they not filled? Do you remember what we learned about them sitting on the isthmus, them being the boomtown, them being where everybody who had a dream and could make it happen that came? One of the mottos of Corinth was self-reliance. We are the people who say, you can do it. And I think that was the very problem, that self-reliance that was part of the culture had seeped into the church. And because of their self-confident Christianity, they were lacking the filling. And that's why Paul had to say, guys, I didn't come to you all impressive like the orators that are all around you. I came to you in weakness. That's the key, Paul is saying. That's the key. And I fear sometimes that, like Corinth, our culture so emphasizes confidence. And you got it. And you can do it. And that's exactly the opposite of what God's plan is. We need to get weak if we want to get strong. In fact, Paul continued his teaching to Corinth on this theme in his second letter. Let me turn to it now. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Uh, Paul, I'll give you the context. Paul had been asking God to remove a weakness from him. We don't know what it is. He called it his thorn in his flesh. It's a weakness. And Paul's like, God, take away this weakness. And God said, no, I'm not going to take away the weakness. And God said, my this is God speaking to Paul, my power is made perfect in your weakness. Now are you understanding what's going on here? When we're weak, Paul says, then, only then, when I realize how weak I am, I am desperately reliant on God. God, if you don't show up, I'm doomed. And when I'm dependent on him, the filling of the Holy Spirit occurs where the power of the Holy Spirit is made perfect 
in that moment. Ah, Paul was so moved by this statement from God that he developed a motto of his own. Next verse, uh, verse 10, Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong, <laughs> which makes no sense when you just read it out of context. You know, wait a minute, when you're weak, you're strong, I'm not following you. But when you put it in context, you're like, oh, that's brilliant. That's right. It's the way it is. It's when I am painfully aware of how weak I am. Listen, uh, the key here is not saying the right words. There are some people who say, oh, I'm weak and I need the Holy Spirit, but they don't believe it. Paul came to a place of feeling the weakness, and he knew it was real. And so it's when you really feel it, and when that cry for God is so raw and authentic that his Spirit will be filling you. You'll be full of the Spirit, and his power or strength will come through. So folks... When you're weak is when you're strong. And so my challenge to you is get weak. Uh, Actually, I don't need to challenge you that. I'll say it more insultingly. You are weak. Just realize it. That's the truth, right? This fantasy about I'm all that. Look at the challenge God is calling you to in your public ministry life, in your family life, in your work life in your character development life, you're weak. You don't have what it takes. And when we realize our weakness and just say, I am in desperate need, that's the key to the filling of the Holy Spirit and the power that we so desperately need. So let's get weak. Let's let our knees tremble. Let's cry out to God, oh, Lord, if you don't show up, I'm doomed. It'll be ugly. I will crash and burn without you. I want to share with you a story from my life of what may have been my first profound filling of the Holy Spirit, kind of in some ways a bit of a parallel to D.L. Moody's experience on Wall Street in New York, very different obviously in other ways, but I relate uh, to Moody's story in this moment in my life. It dates back to my early days in pastoral ministry. Prior to being a big person pastor. I was a youth pastor working with high school students. I was actually a youth pastor at two churches. Both of them went very poorly. The first one, I got fired. Isn't that encouraging that you have a pastor who was fired? The fuller story is that it was a younger church. They didn't have money to pay a youth pastor, so I was a volunteer youth pastor. And uh, I poured my heart into it, though it wasn't very good. No kids, zero kids came to Christ in the year and a half that I was youth pastor at that church. Well, the senior pastor sat down with me in a very awkward exchange, and he said, hey, we got to talk, and I knew it wasn't good. He said, hey, our church is at a place now where we actually have some money to pay our youth pastor. And I'm like, oh, He's like, but now that we have some money to pay a youth pastor, we think we can do better than you. (laughs) He didn't say it that way, but somehow that's what came across. And he said, we're going to take those funds and apply them to a real youth pastor. And you're dismissed. And it just broke my heart, as you can imagine. It was humiliating. Well, I was resilient, though, and I got another job at another church as a volunteer youth pastor. It, too, was a small startup church. It uh, didn't have money to pay me pastor said, I'd love you to be my youth pastor. I can't pay you a dime. I got no facility. We were in a rented facility on Sundays. Uh, He goes, I don't know where you're going to meet. 
I have no students. He said, this church plan is real small. No families have high school students. He said, but call yourself youth pastor. He goes, in fact, I'll make you a business card that says Jeff Griffin, youth pastor. I go, oh, sign me up. And so I was youth pastor. And um, I mobilized three, recruited three adult leaders, young adults. I said, hey, we're starting a new youth group. I need some volunteers to work with me. They said, yes. I found a place. It was my parents' unfinished basement, which was so ugly, but it was free. And so I'm like, perfect. And so the first Thursday, I met with my three volunteers, and I said, hey, welcome to the first youth group. Obviously, there are no youth here yet, and so let's use this time to do leadership development. And then I said, maybe hopefully next week we'll have some youth. Well, next Thursday came, still no kids. The next week came, no kids. The next week came, no kids. The next week came, no kids. I was working hard to recruit kids. I was meeting them at McDonald's and outside their school and inviting high school students all the time. But you can imagine it. They'd be like, tell me about your group. Well, we meet in my parents' basement and there are no other kids. They all took a pass. And so six months went by with me meeting with these three volunteers every Thursday in my parents' basement playing youth group with no youth. And finally, uh, they were about to quit. They were like, Jeff, does this discourage you? Because it's not what we imagined, you know? And I'm like, yes, it discourages me. I don't know what's going on. Right at this low, my parents invited me to join them. They were going on vacation in Colorado. And I'm like, yeah, I got to get out of town here. And so I, I went with them. And it was while praying in Colorado that I had my filling. Here's how it went. I was just bawling in prayer, going, Lord, I am the worst pastor in the history of pastors. Here I have been fired in my first job, and in my second job, I'm a youth pastor with no youth. I'm like, Lord, this is embarrassing. This is horrific. Why? What is wrong? What is wrong? And in an instant, the Holy Spirit brought clarity. It was like a spotlight was shown in my heart, and God showed me the problem. God just showed me, Jeff, your entire short pastoral career has been an exercise in your own self-confidence. Your attitude has been one of, God, aren't you lucky you have me? I'm going to do great things to advance your cause. And God says, Jeff, you have been so cocky and self-reliant with zero dependence on me. In a very loving way, but also a very firm way, I remember God just rebuking me and saying, stop it. And I just repented. My tears were now tears of repentance, saying, God, I'm so sorry. How ugly. I can't. You're right. You're right. You're right. I am so sorry, God. And I repented and begged for his forgiveness. And assurance in my heart of God's forgiveness just came over me. It was as if the Spirit of God within me was saying, Jeff, I forgive you. I forgive you. Jeff, I love you. I love you. I experienced the most intense basking in the love of God. In some ways, it reminds me of what Moody said. I didn't ask God to stop it, though. I said, keep it coming, you know. And I was just enjoying the love of God so much. And I vowed to him that day, I will never, ever, ever rely on myself again. I will always only desperately cling to you. And God said, you better. God said, this last, these years of pastoral ministry will forever be a testament to you, Jeff, 
of what you, Jeff Griffin, are capable of accomplishing on your own. Zilch. And I'm like, boy, I see it, God. I see it with crystal clarity. I get it. And in that moment, I look back at it now and I recognize I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Folks, a few days later, I was back in the area, back at church on Sunday. A new family arrived that Sunday. And they seemed to have a child, a girl, who was around high school age. And me and, after the service, me and my three leaders descended like vultures on raw meat. <laughs> we were like, her name was Stacy. And we we're like, hey, Stacy, uh, are you in high school? And she's like, yeah, I'm a freshman. <laughs> we're like, well, we wanted to invite you to our Thursday night youth group. And she's like, this little church has a youth group? Oh, yeah, we do. <laughs> and she said, yeah, I'll, I'll come. And she said, tell me, uh, is it in this rented facility? No, it's not here. Tell you what, I won't even tell you where it is. I will pick you up. I said, me and my leaders will come this Thursday to your house and pick you up. She's like, wow. I'm like, yeah, we treat our students right. And so I went to her house. We picked her up, and we're driving to my parents' unfinished basement. And she's asking questions. She's like, tell me more about what I'm going to experience here. And I realized I got to tell her. And so I got the car up to a high speed where she couldn't jump out. May have locked the doors even, I don't recall. But I said, Stacy, here's the deal. Uh, you're the first student who's ever come to this youth group. She goes, you mean there'll be no other, nobody else there? Nope, you're the only one. And it's in my parents' unfinished basement. It's not flashy, but welcome. <laughs> and uh, we, we went, and she was like, this is creepy. And uh, we ate some stale snacks and played some silly games, and I led a little Bible study, and at the end, one of my volunteer leaders said, Stacy, what do you think? Will you come again next Thursday? And maybe it was out of pity, but she said, sure, I'll come again. And, and she said, do you mind if I bring a few friends? <laughs> I wanted to say, well, I don't want to ruin the intimate feel of our group, but maybe a couple would be okay, you know. Friends, from that moment of the filling of the Holy Spirit, for the next 12 months, I was doing the same thing, and yet everything was different. We saw 75 high school students trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. They just kept coming by the droves to my parents' unfinished basement, and they weren't church kids. They were not from the church. These were kids from the school and neighborhood. God did an undeniable Miracle. And I'm like, what's going on? And God says, Jeff, I'm just showing you the difference that my Holy Spirit makes. And now you may say, well, I'm so glad, Jeff, because you're our pastor. I'm so glad that your filling was then and we don't have to worry about it anymore. Oh, worry about it. Because here's the problem. Here's Galatians 3.3. This verse haunts me. Paul to the church in Galatians said, after beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying by human effort? One of the dangers is that for me and for all of us is that we experience some fruit by the empowerment of the Spirit, some effectiveness in life and in ministry. And then we, over the years, forget the source and begin to think, oh, we've got something. We're good. And that human effort shift can occur in the filling dry up. And so the desperate challenge for all of us is every day, I mean, we can lose it in a heartbeat, every day say, I am weak, I am weak, I am weak, my knees are trembling. God, if you don't show up, this will be a train wreck. I need you. 
And if we can learn to live every day in that posture of desperate reliance, our lives will be marked by the filling of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? Oh God, I am disgusted by remnants and sometimes big remnants of self-confidence still in me. And I know my friends at all four campuses, we can relate. And so God, we repent anew. Our self-confidence is disgusting. Our cockiness is ugly and insulting and not based in reality. The truth is we are weak and we don't have what it takes to live the life you're calling us to. And so we cry out as a church, God, help. You're our only hope. If you don't show up, we're going down in flames. Spirit of the living God, empower us. Express your anointing. Fill us with your spirit, dear God. May the Compass Church always be a church not marked by people doing things on their own strength for God. May we always only be a church operating with the anointing and power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.